Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Huge show today. Congressman Mark Pocan is going to be with us. There's a lot in the news, but let's start with Congressman Mark Pocan. Congressman Pocan is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the state of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives, the 2nd District. His website is pocan.house.gov. You can reach him at Rep. Mark Pocan via Twitter. Congressman, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. It's great having you with us. You're the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. I believe you guys are all starting to meet right now as Congress is preparing to come back into session. Yeah, in fact, we had our first ever training of freshmen so far And there's still, I think, a few races outstanding that we have some progressive caucus-endorsed candidates that haven't officially been called. But we've had at least 20 of the 50 or so people coming in are people that we've endorsed. So about equivalent to the number we currently have in the caucus, about 40%. We had 13 of them at a training on Monday, first time we've ever done that. Great group of new folks coming in who are part of the progressive caucus, a lot of energy, a lot of diversity it is going to be a real boost in the arm to the work that we do with the Progressive Caucus. So I was very, very excited and another first for our caucus. That is spectacular. That's just absolutely spectacular. And what are your thoughts on what's going on right now down in Florida and Georgia? They're still trying to prevent the vote from being counted, as far as I can tell. Yeah, and add Texas to that list. I saw Gina Ortiz-Jones this morning, who ran against Will Hurd, narrowly behind, and uh, they've made it so that it's impossible to get a list of people who got provisional ballots there as well so they can't go after them to validate the ballot. So it's election shenanigans there. Florida, it's really intense watching what's happening, especially on the Senate race side, and then watching the president and others get involved, and then we're watching it with Kemp in Georgia and what he's done way before the election, much less to this point. Again, one of the things that the House Democrats have, our first bill, H.R. 1, is going to be electoral campaign finance and ethics reform. We're going to address a lot of those issues. We're also going to address issues, Tom. I'm really proud to let your listeners know because this all came out of being on your show. We have specific language to address the interstate cross-check problem 
and mandatory paper ballots. So we have wow. language specifically trying to address paper ballots and interstate cross-check in that bill where we're at right now. We're still in negotiating stage, but it sounds like those are accepted. So especially interstate cross-check, that came out of your listeners, our conversations, and it looks like it's going to be forward in that very first bill. That is, that is absolutely marvelous. I have to tell you a funny story real quick. Henry Stanberry, a guy that most Americans have probably never heard of, Henry Stanberry was appointed to be acting attorney general by President Andrew Johnson in 1866 after Lincoln was assassinated without Senate approval. The Senate impeaches Andrew Johnson, and one of the articles of impeachment was specifically that he had appointed Stanberry as AG. So after he survives his impeachment by one vote in the Senate, he comes back and he announces his intention to put Stanberry on the Supreme Court as a screw you to the Congress, right? So Congress then passes a law reducing the number of members of the Supreme Court by three, from 10 down to seven, so that Andrew Johnson couldn't put Stanberry on the court. This guy is the one guy cited this morning by the Department of Justice who was appointed without Senate confirmation to a senior advisory position, in other words, you know, a cabinet-level position, as the Constitution requires, who was appointed, requires, uh, you know, Senate approval, and this guy's the one guy in history that the DOJ could come up with who wasn't Senate approved and, you know, trying to defend Whitaker's appointment. What do you think? Maybe we'll have an eerie parallel around impeachment again. I don't know. Yeah. It's... Um, but it is outrageous, right, how these guys operate and how they think they can lie to the public, say there's fake news, and then, you know, you only believe what they have rather than the actual facts from history. Uh, it's just, it's again, another sad indictment of this administration. Okay, let's pick up some phone calls here. Yeah. Russ in uh, Hickory Hills, Illinois, here on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, ah, yes. Thank you, Tom and Mr. Pocan. What I want to ask, now that you guys have the purse strings, are you guys going to bring back things like unemployment for two years, education? How about food stamps? Because they have defunded it down to nothing. And let's take it out of the military, because I hate to inform Mitch McConnell, there are no more Democrats in the Senate that are vulnerable after this year. So what do you say about raising the food stamps and that money? Put a lot into it. What do you yeah, think? Russ, I think you'll see a lot of priorities from the Democrats coming through our portion of the appropriations process. I serve on the Appropriations Committee on the Labor, Human Services, Education Subcommittee, which is the second biggest pool of money outside of defense, which is really the money that often we care about because it helps real people across the country the most. The thing is we are one part of the process. You still have a Republican-controlled Senate. So I think we can certainly do better than what we've done under all Republican control, but we still have a Republican White House and Republican Senate. So we certainly are going to put our aspirational ideas out there that we want to see happen in all sorts of areas, because the best way you actually show how much you care about something is by the actual financial support you put behind it, right? That really shows your values, not just words. So you'll see that come out of the Democrats in the appropriations process, but we got to get some other partners on board. Great. Jules in Whittier, California. Jules, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman. I appreciate everything you do. I listen to you religiously. You know, we have the Blue Party and the Red Party. Now, I was thinking, I do art. I was thinking, pour a little yellow into the blue party, and maybe we'll have a green party, right? Now, California is supposed to go 100% solar or something in the next 
10 years or whatever. We've got about 12 years till the Permian, right? The next Permian era, when 95% of the life uh, expires. I say, you know, start a movement, give everyone solar panels across the country, and see what happens. Uh, Carter had them on the White House, and uh, good old Reagan took them down. You're talking about doing what Germany uh, does, right? So let's get the congressman's thoughts on this, Jules. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Jules, this is one area I think, you know, Democrats hopefully can put a number of different proposals around the environment out there. Clearly, there's a mandate from the people to do that. I think specifically one of the things we really have to do is invest a lot in research and development in this area. Uh, there's a company in my town that byproduct of something that they've done with some research support allows them to cut the really, really thin solar cells uh, that right now are mainly done overseas that we'll be able to do in a very cost-effective way. But until we have some of those dollars for research, that's when we can really boom those markets in the U.S. and have all that created right here so you can have American jobs, green jobs, and you can be helping the environment all at once. So there's a number of initiatives we want to do, including you know, going back to some of the standards that we had that President Trump rolled back. But I also want to be innovative because that's one area. If we put some just a little bit of support there, it's going to allow us to really boom in green job growth in the very near future. You think that this could become part of an infrastructure bill that could move through that might actually get bipartisan support and Trump would get behind? And is that a political risk or a political benefit to Democrats? No, I think, you know, we are talking roads and bridges, schools, broadband, water delivery systems, energy grid and delivery systems. So all of that is your infrastructure. I think our fight is going to be over real dollars invested as opposed to just private sector investment or local government because they just don't have the money. So I think we need to have an all-inclusive real push to get this done right. Yeah, cool. Okay. Joven in Redmond, Washington. Joven, you're on the air with Congressman Pokian. Hi, Tom. Hi, uh, Congressman. So I'm a legal immigrant over here, and I want to talk about the plight of uh, Indians over here. Currently, uh, I'm in a H-1B visa to get a green card through the regular route. It'll take around 151 years. But I don't see Democrats talking about that. I have seen many of my friends who have come from India, and after 18 years of age, the children will no longer become uh, the legal dependents, and they have to go back to India, to a country where they were not grown and they don't know anything about. So are Democrats planning to do anything about it, uh, about the legal immigration and the plight of Indians and the, as well as the Chinese? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think if I can take it maybe a little more 30,000-foot level of, you know, we know... And we just mentioned this at a press conference on Monday, Pramila Jayapal and I, Pramila will be the incoming co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, that we've got to have comprehensive immigration reform. Right now, uh, your story uh, is all too common, especially with this administration. We are running into an unprecedented amount of problems, uh, whether it be refugees, uh, visas, uh, immigration in general. Uh, the White House is making it very, very difficult. So it's already, as you explained, a very long and complicated process. And yet we have at least, I think, 13 million people here who are undocumented. We've got to address it through comprehensive immigration reform. So my hopes are uh, my first session, two sessions ago, there was a, a bipartisan bill that came out of the Senate with almost 70 votes. Not maybe what I would have written, but it was a very, very good start. We should be going back to something uh, to start that conversation up because uh, it, it's right now um, not having something in place is why we have the mess with conversations about a wall and problems with DACA and family separation and just go down the list of problems because we won't address a really, really big issue. So it is a priority for Democrats and uh, it's something 
we have a moral obligation to do. Chris in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, Tom. Hey, Congressman Pocan. Thanks for taking my call. What plan is in place, if there is a plan, for the Progressive Caucus to start giving federal breaks for solar, wind, renewable energies? We have a newly appointed governor and Michelle Lujan Grisham that I feel is ready to take New Mexico into the next step and reduce our dependence on oil and gas. And then secondly, Congressman Pocan, I just plead with you to please get newly appointed Deb Hallen on board with uh, Medicare for All. Thank you. Yeah. So on the first part, I mean, I know we have a number of initiatives that we put forward in what we call our people's budget every year. and We have a number of green-based initiatives that I think you'd be very pleased with. Uh, we will, much that happens in separate pieces of legislation, in addition to the budget we put out there, now we can actually have a chance to move separate pieces of legislation. So definitely look for that, and a lot of our members are different leads on those bills. Second, Deb is an awesome addition to the Progressive Caucus and to Congress itself. We're looking forward to having her, our first two Native American women ever elected to Congress. And I'll be glad to talk to her about Medicare for All. Again, she's a good, solid progressive, and I'm sure she's probably just looking for language, which quite honestly... We are redrafting the language right now in the House on the House bill. It'll be closer to what Bernie had in the Senate. Don't forget our House bill is over a decade old, so it needed some modernization, and that's what right now they're working on. So you're reinventing John Conyers' old 676. Uh, He used to come on this show every year when he introduced that. I mean, we're talking 15 years ago, you know. So there's a Medicare for All caucus that Pramila Jayapal, Debbie Dingell, Mark Vizi, and I'm forgetting the fourth co-chair, I apologize, who are working on this right now. They're rewriting the bill. It's going to be a lot closer to what Bernie had, but probably going a little farther than where Bernie had because he had some limitations to bring some folks in. So we're hoping, again, with that, we can organize around the two bills that are much closer than they previously were. That is great. Lynn in Brighton, Colorado, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, Congressman Pocan. Hey, Tom. Um, Is there any way you can bring up any legislation or propose something to fix a loophole in the federal do-not-call list? These robocalls that telemarketers are using now try to get you to answer and then press 9 or whatever. I'm a throwback. I got a landline because it's cheaper for me to have Internet with it. And just my phone rings constantly with these scams. I mean, some people call in person and I just tell them they're breaking federal law, telemarketing me. But, I mean, it's just constant on my cell phone, too. Anything you can do? Yeah, Lynn, I think um, obviously there's things we can propose whether or not the senator or the president will accept it. I can tell you one of the more depressing parts sometimes of Washington is the power of special interest. And the telecommunication companies themselves have enormous power, and you know, why we don't have rural broadband everywhere, why we don't have some of the other issues that we should have. So we could run into some opposition on it. On my cell right now, I honestly have kind of quit answering calls, and if someone knows me, they can text me, because I would say... I'll bet one out of every three or four calls is one of those calls that you're talking about. So we probably need to try to do some consumer regulation around this. My guess is there'll be some opposition from telecommunications. There's no reason why we can't try to move forward. And I think it's a great suggestion, especially for the committees of jurisdiction in that area. Yeah, it's gotten so bad here. Uh, really seemed to explode right after I signed up with a local hospital because now the HIPAA form says that they can sell your information. And literally two days later, I was getting all these calls. And so now neither Louise nor I even answer the phone if we don't recognize the number. Tom, that's what I started doing myself. And, you know, I noticed people will text me, but that's not a great way to operate. Yeah. Yeah, Amen. Grant in Kenmore, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good day, Congressman. I was wondering 
what is being done about the million six hundred thousand plus acres that have been burned in California? Thirty thousand people have been displaced, and yet I don't see the level of involvement that's going on on the border being put forth towards our own emergencies within our borders. Amen. Yeah, Grant, great point. You know, a National Guard is supposed to be there for things like that. Instead, we're sending National Guard to the border. We're sending troops to the border. And the caravan that we're protecting ourselves from is still uh, away from coming. It's just a misplaced priority. And Donald Trump blaming people for not dealing with the fires more efficiently, as I understand it, most of that is federal land, and we're not dealing with it more efficiently. So it's, it is on President Trump's doorstep. But that's an area that we should be doing more with things like National Guard and others trying to help out. It's a dire situation and shows all the more why we need to talk about climate change. I have a caller in the 702 area code. What's your name and where are you calling from? Mary, Nevada. Hey, Mary, you're on the air with Congressman Pokey. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Congressman. With regard to this acting AG, I mean, is it asking too much? I mean, the guy's under FBI investigation for cheating veterans out of millions of dollars and sending threatening emails. Yeah, there and, we go. Thank you. Yeah, Mary. I mean, if there ever was a time, right, to have an administration step up, it would be now. But unfortunately, the Trump administration, this is why we need a check and balance and why the people in America provided that on November 6th. Uh, give us till January 3rd, and we will be able to stand up and do a lot more. Yeah. Your thoughts for the coming week? Yeah, we're going into Thanksgiving week. The following week, a lot's going to happen. We start three weeks of lame duck. It could be an active lame duck. Keep posted. We may need you contacting your representatives. Because we're expecting a whole lot of uh, shenanigans coming out of the Funding Republicans? for the wall, everything they could try to get done while they still have the House, Senate, the White House. So we have to be very vigilant. Congressman Mark Pocan, thank you so much for being with us, Congressman. Of course. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you, as always. Congressman Mark Pocan, pocan.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile and internet provider now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality. That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Greg Pallast is on the line with us from, geez, I'm not sure where you are right now. Greg, I think you just got home uh, back to L.A. from uh, Georgia. From Georgia. And I sent my, I'm lazy, I sent my crew on to Florida where they've been issuing the reports from there. Yeah, lazy is not a word I would use to describe you, but uh, it's, <laughs> I'm glad you're home and you're safe. Because um, I, I was a little concerned. You said you were going down and you were going to you know, put a camera in Brian Kemp's face. And I'm like, whoa. I did. And he had me arrested, but then they, they it was a catch and release operation. Mm-hmm. I said, am I the only reporter being, being busted and removed? They said, they said just you. <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> and then I was in the Trump rally. That was actually a bit frightening. I thought I had a good disguise until I left the rally, and thank God I was already outside when someone said, there's that bad man. <laughs> I oh, kid my. you not. Oh, my. Bad. Did you go in with your normal hat and... and, and oh, no, no, no. It's a Trump rally? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I was like, I was full MAGA, baby. I see. I <laughs> mean, it was, it was uh, incredible. Uh, so, we, yeah, no, I had to... Uh, so what have you learned and, and, and what's the state of the elections right now? Okay, here's the deal. You know, Georgia has to thank Tom Hartman because you publicized out the fact that gregpalace.com had the list of all the purge voters of Georgia, which I got through a lawsuit against Brian Kemp, you know, Secretary of State, running the election while running for election as governor. So I got that purge list, put it up. 100,000 people checked it. So it kind of caused the chaos it was supposed to, people demanding their vote. Judge uh, Amy Totenberg, U.S. Federal District Judge, took a plea from uh, Common Cause, which cited our work and the fact that people were hearing this on radio and TV uh, from your show, yeah. mostly. And Totenberg said, listen, uh, you got to start counting. People showed up who didn't know they were purged. They were given provisional ballots. You, gotta, you have to now count those provisional ballots. You have to count the absentee ballots that you knocked off. You didn't even open up in uh, Gwinnett, which is a black area. Um, because they had so-called mismatch, you know, little tiny technical errors on the outside of the envelope. You know, it's a gotcha game instead of a democracy game. So she's saying these things, and she also held off until tomorrow, Friday, the final certification of the vote. So Common Cause and the Brennan Center, I'm glad someone used our material and for the good. And this is not about being for Stacey Abrams, his opponent, or against Kemp. This is about counting all the votes. And you actually have a judge who thought that's not such a bad idea. The problem is, and here's the problem, Tom, is that we have uh, probably 100,000 people who showed up and were not given provisional ballots. Now, that's a violation of federal law. What Kemp did while he, and he was cute, he resigned from Secretary of State two days after the election. He fixed the whole thing. And then he says, oh, I'm going to avoid a conflict. I'm going to quit now and become governor. So, what they did was, by purging people off the voter rolls, either people didn't get a voter card, say, here's where you go to vote, so they said, I don't know where I'm supposed to vote. They didn't get their absentee ballot that they normally get. They don't know why. And then some people who did show up at the polls, tens of thousands, tens of thousands who showed up at the polls, were told under Kemp rules, if you're not on the voter rolls, you can't vote. Yeah, yeah. we know that. But you can't ask for a provisional ballot to challenge the fact that you were purged off the voter rolls. Right, which is a violation of federal law. I mean, you accompanied Martin Luther yeah. King's cousin, 92-year-old cousin, to the polls. She had yeah. been voting in that same precinct her entire life. She had been purged by Brian Kemp, and initially they refused to give her a provisional ballot. After all, it was an African-American neighborhood. We can't have them voting, right? And you were there with a camera crew, and you called a lawyer and you know connected the lawyer to the person who was sitting at the desk. But obviously, they had been turning away people all day long who had yes. been purged by Brian Kemp. We, we had several people that I accompanied, and if it weren't for the fact that I had lawyers on the line, if it weren't for the fact that I was operating three national TV crews, we couldn't have even gotten people provisional ballots, let alone right. the ballots that they deserved. Right. And I, so you have, yeah, that's a, it's just, it's tragic beyond imagination. It's undemocratic beyond imagination. Yes, small d, yes, absolutely. A little bit of great good news for you, Greg. Congressman Mark Pocan said the first piece of legislation 
that is going to be introduced in the new Congress in January, H.R. 1, is going to be an election integrity voter protection bill. And he said, because he has been on my program, he says, this is because of your show, Tom. He said, because he's been on this program for, what, a couple of years now, I guess, every week taking calls from listeners. And so many people who had listened to Greg Pallast and his conversations about what the difference was between a provisional ballot and an absentee ballot and, and how voter suppression works and interstate crosscheck and all the stuff about interstate crosscheck, he said, we are specifically outlawing interstate crosscheck in this All right. <laughs> they got to get the, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Mr. Trump is going to have to sign that, but okay, this is how the fight begins. Yeah. And this is why you need a different Congress. But the other issue is, and I hope that they'll take this up, you know, when I wrote the story in Florida in 2000, saying that black people were illegally purged from the voter rolls called felons and they weren't, that created the provisional ballot. It was just that story of the black voters removed. Right, it was part of the Help America Vote Act of 2002. The idea of the Help America Vote Act. So now, of course, you know, as soon as Bush tells you he's going to help you vote, you better look out because they gave the Congressional Black Caucus the provisional ballot that they asked for so you could challenge being purged. What they didn't do is win the right to have it counted. Now, there's something that New York and some states used to have before this provisional nonsense, this placebo ballot where you may think you voted and you probably haven't, but it was an affidavit ballot which says, if you sign under penalty of prison, of perjury, five years in the slammer, that you are an American citizen and you're living at this address that should be voting in this station, then your vote counts unless someone comes along and says, that's a lie, that's a fraud, and then, of course, you get arrested. But, you know, basically, we don't assume that Americans are criminals when they're filling out uh, their ballot. Right. And so the affidavit ballot should return to replace the provisional ballot. I know that's you're one of the few guys I can make that kind of distinction with, but that could change America, American elections utterly. And I will tell you that we're not done in Georgia. Uh, my attorneys, I've already sued Brian Kemp in federal court, and my attorneys and maybe others will be joining us in adding new information about just this issue of people denied. I mean, Totenberg did a great job in saying count those provisional ballots. That's radical. But what's still missing is Kemp stop people from getting those ballots. So now we have to make the case you have people who didn't have a chance to vote. It's a razor-thin margin about whether there'll be a runoff or not. The state's doing a runoff anyway for Secretary of State, by the way. So it's no big deal to add the governor's race. Just rerun this race and put those 340,134 voters that my team found were illegally purged, put them back on the rolls, let them vote in the runoff, and then see what democracy determines. Yeah. Yeah. And I, in fact, after I get off the air, I will send a note to Congressman Pocan telling him about the New York affidavit vote ballots. I did not know about those, Greg. Thanks so much for the information. And yeah. hopefully it's there's still time to get that, if possible, to get that into H.R. 1, you know, this opening piece. I, of I think they'll be spending a lot of time on figuring out what to do there. But, you know, be very careful when uh, when you talk about Ayers and Karl Rove, they had their hand in the Help America Vote Act. So we end up with a so-called reform which ended up with further disenfranchisements. Brian Kemp has absolutely violated the National Voter Registration Act of 93. His job was to make the voter rolls more accurate. Well, bleaching them white is not making them more accurate. It's just making them whiter. And um, he can be governor. He can be the, the, the big kahuna. He still has to face me in a federal court and start telling the truth under oath because I'm getting too many crazy responses from this guy. And I just the only thing we can do is put him under oath and, uh, and ask him some very uncomfortable questions. Yeah. And by the way, Georgia, unlike other states, 
has a special provision in the law which says if there's uh, mass uh, uh, que- if there are, uh, questions about large numbers of votes in the state, that the election can be overturned. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Watch this space. Wow. Is that a legislative procedure, a judicial procedure? Who, who's That's responsible? That's a judicial procedure. It's so uniquely be, in Georgia law. It would be Georgia, Georgia appeals courts or whatever they call them, the top courts in Georgia. The, uh, it would be, uh, initially could be Georgia courts. However, because the federal law is also involved, this gets a little complicated. You can, uh, the federal judge, Totenberg, can simply take control and say, I'm going to rule under Georgia law combined with the National Voter Registration oh, yeah. Act and, and do something radical. Say, you know what? Everyone gets to vote. Every vote gets counted. Yeah, she could do that under the supremacy clause. You're absolutely right. Greg Palace, gregpalace.com. Thank you, Greg. You're the best, Tom. Bye. You're you too. listening to Tom Hartman. Visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archive. I've never endorsed a weight loss product before Riduzone. Why Riduzone? I've seen firsthand how well it worked for my wife. With the wedding coming up, Louise wanted to lose a little weight. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule along with your metabolism so you stop craving the wrong foods and you burn calories faster. Once her appetite and cravings were under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off plus free shipping. Go to tryriduzone.com. That's T-R-Y, try R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. TryRidUZone.com. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off, plus free shipping. TryRidUZone.com. That's T-R-Y, try, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. TryRidUZone.com. Promo code TOM. Chuck in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Hey, Chuck, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hey, buddy. How you doing? Good. Long time, though. I've, I've been listening to you forever. I've always wanted to call you, and I finally got through. <laughs> Great. Nice to meet you, Chuck. Um, What's up? What is it with these antitrust laws? How did we get away? I know Reagan started this crap, but, I mean, how did we get away from enforcing what would stop that from happening? The laws are relatively vague. They say that if a, if a trust or a monopoly or a cartel in commerce diminishes competition, that... The executive branch of the federal government then has the authority to to demand that that cartel or trust or or corporation be broken up into smaller pieces. And when they did that, when Nixon did that with uh, AT&T, it was a pretty rigorous process. It took about a year in, in Congress to get all the bugs organized, excuse me, not in Congress, in the White House, and they rolled the thing out. What has happened since Reagan came in is Reagan effectively in 1983 just simply stopped even evaluating companies for those purposes. And now the evaluations only happen when it's just absolutely huge. And even then, they're typically rubber stamped. You know, the only one that's being challenged right now by the federal government is the CNN-AT&T merger. And that's uh, the Time Warner AT&T. And that's because Time Warner owns CNN and Donald Trump hates CNN. So he's basically trying to harass the, you know, their parent company. It's just, it's just that simple. All the other big ones are just like, hey, no problem. You know, I think it was Aetna. It might have been one of the other big companies, but I'm pretty sure it was Aetna. Just bought, what was it, Walgreens, as I recall. Um, you know, yeah. you know, one of the big insurance companies just bought one of the big national chain uh, retail stores. I think CVS is, is on the block or is, has been acquired by an insurance company. It's like these mergers are obviously anti-competitive 
And yet we're just, you know, shrugging our shoulders. Trump doesn't care, obviously. You know, these monopolies, the thing about monopolies is that, particularly given the Supreme Court rulings on money in, in politics, is that they have massive political power. These monopolies now have more political power than unions do. They have more political power than movements do. They have more pol political power than any of the political parties do. None of the political parties have, the, have you know, a broad enough base to take them on. And they got more money than any of those groups. So uh, this is a crisis of democracy, Chuck. Bottom line is whatever, what I've been saying my whole life. It's all about the cash dang money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Absolutely. if you've got more money, you can do it all, no matter what. I mean, it, it would only take a president to say, I'm breaking you up. You know, I mean, that, that's it. We're not going to allow this. We issued you your incorporation, and uh, we're taking that back from you because there's no competition, and you lose. Goodbye. Yeah. Didn't they do that with Standard Oil or whatever? That's what Teddy Roosevelt did to Standard Oil, yeah. That's what Richard Nixon did to AT&T. And they were both Republicans. Well, but on uh, one of the it. History Channel things that I was watching, when they did that, uh, what's his name? The guy that owned the company was all... John Rockefeller. And, and, and when they did it, all he did was just start naming the companies that they broke it into into different names. He still made... Oh, I know. He, uh, the stockholders of AT&T actually ended up with more valuable stock after the breakup than before. Chuck, thanks for the call. Nathan in Burnsville, Minnesota. Hey, Nathan, what's on your mind today? Hey, thanks for taking my call. And I kind of wanted to get your explanation on it a little bit. You know, these big companies monopolizing everything, it's a threat to democracy. Uh, they need to be broken up. They need to be kind of like the banks. I'm assuming you would say, too, break up with the big banks. And, yep. Um and things like that. And I, I agree to a point with you. However, I want to know then why uh, don't you feel the same as far as like federal government and getting too big where there's like this, let's get smaller businesses, let's break up these big companies, but then let's inflate government. Yeah, your question belies a fundamental misunderstanding of the difference between democracy and capitalism. Okay. The federal government is answerable to we the people, at least in theory. I mean, the problem is that right. these cartels have gotten so large that they have replaced we the people in terms of being the major influence on government. But you're not going to get rid of government. That's not an argument for destroying government. Government is, you know, at least in a democratic republic, government is answerable to the people. So there's no such thing as big government or small government, as much as the Republicans like to use those phrases. What the question is, what's an appropriate amount of government action in the marketplace? And what's an appropriate level of government support for uh, you know social existence? Do we want to be a country like Canada where everybody has health care, right, for a very low cost for average families around 200 bucks a month in Canada, because they don't pay the 30 percent overhead that we pay to private insurance companies? Do we do want to be a country both, where do they see that in their taxes? Do, sorry for interrupting, but do they see? And correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be hearing just the talking heads, you know, put this in my yeah. head. But you say it's a very low cost in Canada. Right. Don't they see that cost in their taxes? You know, aren't they paying 70 percent, you know, taxes, a tax rate that's... And no, nobody's paying 70 percent. Okay. I mean, no working person is paying that level. Canada's tax okay. rate is probably on the average, and, and I'm sure we'll get calls from Canadians about this. Canadians are typically paying maybe 10 percent more than we pay in taxes. And that plus you also pay for your Medicare, just like retired people do in the United States. You know, every month you have to send a check to the government for your health insurance, but it's a small check. But because single-payer health care is roughly 30% more efficient 
And that's just at the delivery. That's just at the level of the insurance companies. For example, compare Albert Einstein Hospital in New York City with, I'm forgetting the name of it, but there's a hospital in Toronto that literally is almost the exact same size, same number of beds, same number of floors, same number of operating theaters, all this kind of stuff. You compare those two hospitals, the one in New York has an entire floor with almost 100 employees dedicated to billing, to dealing with all the health insurance companies. The one in Canada has one office with three people in it that handles all the billing for the hospital. That's how you get efficiencies from single payer. So again, back to the question, what's the appropriate size of government? You know, government is about 30% of GDP in Canada. It's about 20% of GDP in the United States. Because in Canada, government covers the cost of health care. Government covers the cost of education. Anybody in Canada can also go to college without ending up with massive amounts of debt. And it's not just Canada. It's true of pretty much all the other developed countries of the world. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is not is, is a big government, is a small government, is a limited government? Those are all, you know, Frank Luntz focus group tested phrases. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what do we as Americans believe are the appropriate functions of government? Do we agree with the 33 other OECD countries in the world that providing people with health care and education is a fundamental right? Or do we believe that health care and education should be opportunities for billionaires and big corporations to make a buck off the citizens? And once we've made that decision, and those two positions, by the way, have been staked out largely by the Democratic versus Republican parties, once we make those decisions, then we go ahead and act on it. And it's up to the people. And that's why I said it's not, you know, it's not a question of big government, because government responds to the people. If the Democrats take over, if the majority of people vote for Democrats, you're going to end up with free health care and free education. If the Republicans continue to hold power, you're going to end up with more student debt and more people who are losing health insurance. It's just that simple, because these are their positions. The question is, what do we as a nation think is appropriate? And I also think that our inflated defense budget has something to do, you know, you look at these other developed countries, we're subsidizing, you know, the, the war on terror for them. We've been doing that since. We're actually not. World. We're protecting our own interests around the world, sure. mostly business interests. Our base in Germany is there, not in case Germany flips Nazi. It's not there to protect mm -hmm. Germany for that matter. It's there to be able to project force into the Middle East. I mean, most of our military bases are for those kinds of reasons. But, no, I know. I, but, but yeah, we do have a bloated military. I'll agree with you on that. And that comes along with empire. Nathan, thanks for the call. In the meantime, you know, is Trump fiddling while America is falling? Are we looking at the end of empire here? Is that what's going on? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And if Trump or his family members are indicted, does that mean that he's going to pull the pin out of the hand grenade and throw us into a war in Iran or Venezuela? Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, a new book by Ellen Ratner. On the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News at the UN in New York, Luke Vargas. You can follow Luke on Twitter at The Courier. And Luke, it seems that uh, Theresa May has unveiled the, the final Brexit deal. I've been following this both in the Financial Times, which has done some really good coverage of it, and mm -hmm. also on Twitter. So this seems like this is a real kind of make or break point politically for Theresa May. What's your take on this and how is this playing? I think for many people who have been expecting or, or sort of awaiting a Brexit deal for a long time, this day was seen as probably going to be a good one for Theresa May, right? She'd be able to 
sort of um, quash rumors that there was going to be no deal, which would lead to really painful measures for Britain. And indeed, now an agreement has been reached, we're told, between uh, the European Union and her government. She has been meeting with her cabinet now for going on four or so hours. And the real challenge appears to be not winning over the European Union. That was relatively easy at this point. It's winning over her own or her own party members, which I think shows you just how backed against the rope she is. Well, why is it that her own party is not eager to go along with her on this? Well, I think it goes back to two sort of false notions that uh, the pro-Brexit camp had from the very start, and these divisions have only gotten worse with time. One is that I think many people who were pro-Brexit felt like this was a time for their um, sort of nationalist uh, image to get burnished, that these were uh, people like Nigel Farage and many others in the pro-Brexit, the Leave camp, as it's called, that felt like, look, this would vindicate them, the Brexit victory, and that suddenly they would go from being uh, figures in the political shadows of British politics to suddenly nationalist heroes of some sort. And in fact, over the last two years, if anything, I think their inability to negotiate they, and the, the sort of false promises they made during the campaign about the kind of leverage Britain would have if it decided to leave the European Union never materialized. Far from it. I mean, I think many people like Farage uh, and his cohort have, have kind of crashed out of politics, leaving behind a lot more sort of moderate bunch of uh, leavers who are less committed to a you know, Brexit at any cost type of strategy. And that is is a difficult thing for Theresa May as she tries to add up the map here. Um, just as an example of the outlandish promises made by members of the Leave campaign uh, two years back, they were saying, you know, by the, the day that Britain leaves the European Union, they'll have already negotiated 40 trade deals with other countries so that there's just a seamless um, gap between the trade preferences. This is what the Swiss and, did back 20 years ago. Yeah, and but there was a piece of the Financial Europe. Times saying that the EU has explicitly said to the UK, don't expect to get the same kind of deal the Swiss have. Exactly. Yes. And, and so as we are now, uh, you know, about five months out from Brexit, zero deals have been negotiated. And, you know, the British government really finds itself without any real way to turn the tides and cobble back some leverage for itself. I think many people expected the European Union and it's the, the sort of division, internal divisions that have been haunting it to materialize during this negotiation period. And the result has been anything but, right, that the, Britain, uh, the European negotiators really drew a line in the sand and said, we are only going to talk about the parts of Brexit that you right. want to talk about, Britain, once you've formally agreed to the divorce bill, as they call it. Well, and you know um, why they're is, saying this. They're saying this because in Greece, Italy, and Spain, there are substantial exactly. local movements well, to pull, yeah. out, of, to pull yeah. out of the EU. And they're trying to say, if you pull out of the EU, we'll squash you like a bug. Don't even think about it. Exactly. And so Britain, you know, the, the pro-Brexit camp uh, must decide whether Brexit is worth it, even if they can make zero guarantees to their constituents now about what that Brexit might look like. So that's very, uh, very much dividing the caucus. So she's in a cabinet meeting now. We will find out in the next few hours whether or not this is going to go through. But there is talk of a, of, of at the very least, 
cabinet registrations and perhaps a no confidence vote being called for Theresa May tomorrow if this whole thing unravels. And then, of course, you might see a change in in leadership at the top at a time when she thought she could just steer this Brexit bill right through her own uh, House of Commons. So it's, it's proving to be very difficult to, to hurt everyone. Reuters has a new report out on how a Chinese tech firm helped the Venezuelan government build a surveillance state. Tell us about this. You may have heard of ZTE. This is the infamous uh, U.S. sanctions violator that President Trump wanted to allow back into the U.S. market earlier this year until Congress basically said absolutely no way. Uh, They've been working with the Venezuelan government, according to Reuters, to create a new Carnet de la Patria, a fatherland card, which is a new requirement for all Venezuelan citizens who want to access food subsidies, medical care, and a range of other welfare programs on the island. It is linked to your presence on social media, your political party membership, your voting patterns, all of your economic and medical records in a basically a copy of a program that China has, uh, ZTE decided to export that. It's pretty concerning, and, and you're seeing the Venezuelan government try to boost enrollment, the usage of this card, by basically giving out cash to people who do it. In exchange, though, they will be pretty much tracked from birth to death. It's uh, a pretty upsetting government oversight, to say the That's least. That's amazing. That's amazing. Luke, you've always got the best news. Luke Vargas, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Tom. Talk to you soon. Yep. Great talking with you. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. You can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order Using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. Our book today is Playing with Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics by Lawrence O'Donnell. The first chapter, Seizing the Moment, it starts in 1968. Richard Nixon was in a makeup chair when he met Roger Ailes. Maybe it was the makeup chair that set Ailes off. He was looking at the man who might have been president right now if he had just sat in the makeup chair CBS offered him in Chicago before the first televised presidential debate 
in American history. Nixon had ignored the network's makeup artist and used a drugstore product called Lazy Shave to cover his heavy five o'clock shadow. Nixon once said, I can shave within 30 seconds before I go on television and still have a beard. The day after the debate, the Chicago Daily News ran the headline, Was Nixon Sabotaged by TV Makeup Artist? Richard Daly, the all-powerful Democratic mayor of Chicago, said, My God, they've embalmed him even before he died. Nixon lost the election to John F. Kennedy by two-tenths of one percent of the vote, 49.7 percent to 49.5 percent. In an election that close, every mistake matters. A mistake like not getting the makeup right was the kind of thing that infuriated Roger Ailes. Now, seven years later, Ailes was meeting Nixon for the first time in the makeup room of the Mike Douglas show. At age 26, Ailes looked like an assistant, but he was the boss, the executive producer of the show. And Nixon was once again a presidential candidate in what was beginning to look like a crowded field covering the 1968 Republican nomination. Ailes wanted Nixon to be president, and he knew the most powerful force blocking Nixon's path to the White House was television. To win the White House in the 1960s, you had to understand and respect the power of television. Ailes also knew that one of Nixon's potential rivals for the Republican nomination understood everything about television, Ronald Reagan, the former film and TV actor. Ailes wondered what Nixon had learned about TV since the makeup disaster of the 1960 campaign. Sitting in the makeup chair, Nixon offhandedly mentioned to Ailes how silly it felt to try to reach voters by appearing on an afternoon talk show like this one instead of a news show like Meet the Press. The Mike Douglas show is targeted at housewives and usually populated by B-list showbiz celebrities. In response, Ailes instantly rattled off a list of every bad move Nixon had ever made on TV, and it was a long list. Ailes was a teenager when he'd seen some of these things. This was not the way people talked to former Vice President Richard Milhouse Nixon. There was none of the deference Nixon had become accustomed to over the decades, and Nixon loved it. Nixon made Ailes an offer he couldn't refuse. Instead of trying to make Mike Douglas America's biggest afternoon TV star, make Richard Nixon America's next president. With Ailes on the media team, the Nixon campaign was ready to make the move from being the worst TV campaign to the best. We're going to build this whole campaign around television, Nixon told his media team. You boys just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Roger Ailes' career in Republican politics, which included every day he ran Fox News, turned out to be longer than Richard Nixon's. Ailes became more influential in Republican politics than Nixon ever was. We have reason to wonder who would be president today if Richard Nixon had not provoked Roger Ailes in the Mike Douglas show makeup room. Such are the seeds that were planted in American politics in the 1968 presidential campaign. Run Bobby Run is the subhead for the next part of this. Bobby was a natural on television. In 1967, he was the only potential presidential candidate who could charm a TV audience just by being himself. All he needed was his smile. Bobby was the Elvis of American politics, the only politician who didn't need a last name to identify him. But his last name was everything. It was Bobby Kennedy's last name that made every potential candidate fear him. As the field of candidates began to take shape in 1967, every campaign calculation depended on Bobby, even when he showed no signs of wanting to run, even when he told people he wasn't going to run. President Lyndon Baines Johnson feared Bobby to the point of obsession. Johnson thought Bobby was the only one who could do the unthinkable, challenge the incumbent president's grip on the Democratic nomination. Johnson was sure that Bobby was the only Democrat who might dare run against him. He was wrong. Nixon feared Bobby, too, as did every Republican planning a campaign. Nixon knew exactly what to fear. He had lost to a Kennedy before. Losing to a Kennedy meant losing to the Kennedy political machine, and it meant losing it to the Kennedy style. 
a political machine can be beaten by a better political machine, though Nixon had never seen a better political machine than the Kennedys. Kennedy's style was something else. Nixon knew there was nothing Ailes could do for his image that could compete with Kennedy's style. Nixon couldn't change his sharply receding hairline. At 54, he was too old to do anything but tamp down his short, dark hair as flat as possible on his head. Bobby's hair had grown longer every year of the 1960s. Now at 42, he had the shaggiest hair in the United States Senate. His little brother Ted was the only other senator with a full head of hair. Bobby's hair was beginning to grow over his ears, rock musician length for the Senate then. And everywhere Bobby spoke outside the Senate chamber, he was treated like a rock star. That's what Nixon and Johnson feared most about Bobby, the way the crowds responded to him. They'd never seen anything like it in politics. Nixon and Johnson were both old enough to remember the first time anyone saw fans screaming and swooning for Frank Sinatra in the 1940s before, during, and after every song Sinatra sang. America saw an even more intense version of that fan reaction when the Beatles landed in the United States in 1964. And now Nixon and Johnson saw a version of it happening to Bobby. Everywhere Bobby went, crowds worked themselves into frenzies. When he spoke, he didn't sound like any senator they'd heard before. His voice wasn't stiff and self-conscious. The book Playing With Fire by Lawrence O'Donnell. Our buddy Lawrence O'Donnell is on the line with us. He is the host, of course, of The Last Word, the must-see MSNBC show every night. He's also the author of the new book, Playing with Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transforming of American Politics. We made this our book of the day, our book club. I read about a five-minute excerpt of it. Uh, Lawrence, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Tom, great to be here. I really appreciate it. It is so great having you on. I mean, you and this show go way, way back, and it's great having you here with us. Tell us about your new book. Well, you know, when I was sitting down and read a book, I asked myself, what is the most dramatic political story I know, using all of my drama instincts that I developed as a writer for the West Wing and other television dramas? And it was very simple, after about 90 seconds of thought. It was the 1968 presidential election, which I watched as a high school kid sitting on my living room floor, my parents and my older brothers watching the Democratic Convention, watching the campaign coverage, watching the coverage of the war in Vietnam at the same time, which was defining the presidential campaign, watching this horrible and painful coverage of these dramatic events like the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968, followed just weeks later by the assassination of Bobby Kennedy on what was the biggest winning night of his life. He had won the California primary. He seemed poised to be ready to go on to get the Democratic nomination in Chicago and was shot and assassinated that night. And so living through it was a drama. It was a drama more powerful, more dramatic, more gut-wrenching than the drama that we live through every day in the Trump presidency, which is more, when you compare it to 68, this is more of a melodrama. It's more of a soap opera drama, a very strange first lady suddenly entering the firing business, suddenly assuming the powers of the presidency to fire people at the White House who work on the national security side. Statements. Yeah, I mean, you know, so that stuff is all, that's just all crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean, the truth is, it doesn't matter to anyone whether Melania Trump fires the deputy national security advisor chosen by John Bolton, or whether Donald Trump fires that person, or whether John Bolton fires that person, or whether that person quits, because 
It's a 100% completely incompetent operation, no matter who's sitting in those chairs. Uh, and, yet, and yet, it feels like dramatic news, when in fact it's really just melodramatic. What was happening in 1968 was genuinely dramatic. It was life-threatening to all of us in some way. If you didn't have a draft card in your pocket, then your older brothers did, or your boyfriend did, or your cousin did, or your uncle did, or your nephew did, or your grandson did. And you were terrified that your grandson might be shipped out against his will to Vietnam to die. And in 1968 alone, over 16,000 American families had military funerals for their loved ones killed in Vietnam. I went to my first military funeral in 1968 for my cousin Johnny, who was uh, had just graduated from West Point and survived 90 days in Vietnam, got a silver star and got killed on that final day in Vietnam. Oh and so the threat, the darkness that we were living under then was much worse, much more serious, involved the lives and deaths of our own loved ones. That's what was at stake. And today's darkness is different. It's oppressive. It's awful. We can go on forever describing it. But if you're old enough, you know that it was once worse, and we came through that. Yes, amen, and that's one of the things that keeps me going, too. Lawrence, two of the things in your book that I found so compelling, we're talking with Lawrence O'Donnell. He's got a brand-new book out. It's called Playing With Fire. It's about the 68 election. One was how Roger Ailes hooked up with Donald Trump, first on the Merv Griffin show, as I recall, and then later uh, around the time of the 1960 election, which Nixon lost by a, a whisker, and then again in 68, and basically became the man, Roger Ailes became the man who made Richard Nixon president. And that was a very grim foreshadowing for me. And then the other one was your description of Bobby Kennedy, the guy with the longest hair in the United States Senate. And, you know, your descriptions of Bobby Kennedy throughout the book are just beautiful. I mean, just elegant, so elegant. But the person I keep thinking about when I read your descriptions of RFK is Beto O'Rourke. And I'm wondering if that rings for you, too. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on my thoughts on, you know, what you wrote about Ailes and Nixon and the impact of television and obviously Fox News. Nixon pulls Roger Ailes out of entertainment television into his presidential campaign in 1968 because he likes what Ailes knows about TV. Ailes then becomes the most successful Republican campaign consultant in history. He helps elect Nixon twice, helps elect Reagan twice, helps elect the first President Bush, helps elect the second President Bush by creating Fox News in the 1990s that becomes a Republican support television network, the ultimate dream of Roger Ailes' political influence on television. We would not have Donald Trump today as president if Roger Ailes had not created and run Fox News. When I saw Beto O'Rourke in Austin during the campaign in front of that huge crowd, and when I saw him do question and answer, the tough question and answer interview in front of an audience in a theater of about a thousand people, I sat there thinking I was seeing the 21st century Bobby Kennedy. Bobby yeah. Kennedy is exactly who I thought about, yeah. exactly who I thought about when I watched Beto O'Rourke. 
It's nice to have my instincts validated. How do you think that this whole political moment is going to play out? It seems to me like Trump has just gone into withdrawal over the last few days, and his followers are authoritarian followers. They want an authoritarian leader who's a big winner so that they feel safe. And Trump is now a loser, and he's hiding out and complaining and whining. And we saw, what, an eight-point drop in his popularity since the election. I think that's because the authoritarian followers are saying, he's not the big daddy anymore. I can't follow him. What do you think? Yeah, look, the first time the voters got a chance to rebuke Trumpism, to stop it, they did. They gave the House representatives to the Democrats. The Democrats' mandate from those voters is make sure nothing bad happens. Those voters are not expecting a Democratic House to be able to legislate things that then pass Mitch McConnell's Senate and get signed by the craziest president in history. They're not expecting that. The job is vote no. The job is stop anything that Donald Trump wants to do legislatively. So we know now that Trump legislation is dead in the Congress because it is dead in the House of Representatives. So we are now spared. One huge worry has been taken away. Donald Trump cannot legislate anything for the remainder of his presidency. Not one thing. And thank God uh, Now for there's it. more to do. And that's the next stage of the Democratic resistance to Trump. And they are well on track to win back the Senate, well on track to win back the presidency. There you go. Check out Lawrence O'Donnell's new book, Playing with Fire, the 1968 election, the transformation of American politics. And of course, check out his show on MSNBC, The Last Word, every weekday night. Lawrence, thanks so much for dropping by. Good luck. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. Howard in Indiana. Hey, Howard. Reading Alexis de Tocqueville, his book, Democracy in America. In Chapter 10, he speaks of parties, political parties, mm -hmm. that larger countries, coalitions, will coalesce into parties. But if parties bicker back and forth, they can't settle things. Eventually, they become nations, they become two nations in one country. The mm. thing he got to, what that will probably lead to, is civil war. And I think he, in the 1830s, when he wrote this book, he was looking 25 years ahead, yeah. and he was seeing the coming of a civil war. I agree. I agree. There's also a part of uh, democracy in America that absolutely shocked me when I read that book back maybe 20 years ago. And I quoted extensively from it in my book, Unequal Protection, about the 14th Amendment. He said, I see a time in the future when a vast tutelary power shall enfold the people, a protective, warm, nurturing, protective power. People will not be offended. They will be entertained. And the entertainment will be where they get their political information. And they will become politically ignorant as a consequence of this. And it will be the end of the republic. I mean, he was like describing Fox News. It was so shocking. So that's one of the later chapters. I'm not, I don't remember how many chapters are in de Tocqueville's book, but that was maybe three quarters of the way through the book. So if you haven't read that yet, you might want to look for it, Howard. It's an amazing chapter. And if you have yeah, we'll do. Yeah, if you have a digital yeah. copy of it, just look for tutelary because it's probably the only place in the book okay. where that appears. Howard, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. Gary in Huntington, West Virginia. Gary, you got the last minute of the show. What's on your mind today? Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it once more. I have some unsolicited, try to be humble, remark about my fellow Democrats. Compromise to move America forward if it's an honest compromise for legislation. But keep in mind one thing. The Republicans, most of them, not all, have had a history of being basically hogs, hmm. intellectually and across the board. You know what you do with a hog? You, you, you hit them in the snout. You hit them in the snout, that's what gets their attention. Hold to principle. If you must compromise, do not ever compromise your principles. How's that, Gary?
Right. Hit okay. him in the stout. Okay. Hit him in the stout. Thanks a lot, Gary. Great to hear from you. Boy, what a day. Jefferson Smith will be in tomorrow. I'm heading out to Washington, D.C. for a must-attend meeting. So, you know, wish me well, you know, Lord willing and the crick don't rise and all that. But in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll be back tomorrow. I'll see you Monday. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.